This is David Suisse in the Jewish Journal Studios. Today, we're very happy to have Amanda Berman, my friend Amanda Berman, civil rights activist, attorney, director of legal affairs at the Lawfare Project, and recently co-founder and CEO of the Zionist Movement. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is you left the harsh winters of New York. Mm -hmm. I did, and it's going to be hard to go back. Being here is just so wonderful. Did you really come here for business? Uh, No, not really. (laughs) I did. I've had a lot of really wonderful, really interesting meetings this week. I was able to uh, meet up with a lot of the Zionists who participated in the Women's March with the L.A. contingent on January 20th. Um, And it was so fantastic to meet them. These are people I didn't know who learned about our movement online and, you know, through media, such as the Jewish Journal article, which we were really grateful for. Um, You're covering our movement and and our participation in the march. And we had, you know, I think about 100 signs were handed out. I think we had about 100 marchers in the Women's March, people who marched proudly as progressives and Zionists who care deeply about social justice issues and also the Jewish state. So let's take a step back for a second, uh, assuming our listeners have never heard of Zionists, although if you read the Jewish Journal, we did a, a big story on it. Can you try to summarize the mission of the Zionist movement? And that spells Z-I-O-N-E-S-S. Absolutely. It's very simple. Zionist is activating and empowering progressives and liberals, Americans who care deeply about racial, economic, gender, and social justice issues in America, want to fight in social justice circles for progressive values as proud Zionists, people who don't want to check their Jewish or Zionist identity at the door when they engage in these crucial movements um, for equality and human dignity in the United States. Right, but um, are there any problems in the past that precipitated the need for this movement? Yes, uh, absolutely. We launched, um, to be totally honest, as a response to this really pervasive undercurrent of anti-Semitism in a lot of of radical progressive spaces. Can you give an example? Yes, of course. So the Chicago Dyke March was, I think, a watershed moment for the Jewish community, for liberal Jews and Zionists alike, and just anyone who, who sincerely cares about progressive values, because there were two women who were marching in Chicago during Pride Weekend with a pride flag with a Jewish star on it. And they were ejected from the march and told that the Jewish star was an oppressive racist symbol. And they were told to leave. It wasn't an Israeli flag, not that I would have had any problem if it was. It was a pride flag with a Jewish star representing the two, you know, commingled identities of these women. Now, how did the, I'm curious, how did the liberal Jewish community react to an event like that? Again, I think it was a watershed moment. I think it was the first time that the community really became aware of the fact that this line that we sometimes talk about between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism maybe isn't real. Maybe that line doesn't exist. Maybe anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. You know, maybe it's not in 100% of circumstances, although I think it's pretty often it is the same. But in this situation, it became very clear that, you know, this line is nowhere near as bright as maybe our community was hoping and wishing that it was before this happened. Amanda, are we talking here about the phenomenon of intersectionality? Yeah, I think in large part that's what we're responding to. Explain that. 
Okay, so the idea of intersectionality is that all victims of oppression, all marginalized communities should join together to fight for social justice and racial justice as as a group, as a unified group. And I think in theory, that's a beautiful idea. The problem is the complicated nature of some of the movements, the nuances of some of the issues that are being addressed in progressive circles. And honestly, the exploitation of well-meaning, often young progressives who care deeply about the issues that are being addressed on the left, who care deeply about equality and human dignity for all, and are told that in order to participate, they have to agree on absolutely everything, that there's no room for nuance, there's no room for reasoned or, you know, intellectual debate. And it's a problem because it ends up being a movement that's supposed to be inclusive and ends up being very exclusive and and uh, really marginalizing for anyone who may challenge some of those tenets that are, are supposed to be such a crucial part of intersectionality. Why is it, though, that it seems that it's always when we get to the cause of Israel that that's the one that gets sort of singled out? You know, it's like... Um, I don't really care how you feel about other issues, but if you're not if you're not following this ideological line on Israel, then you're out. Then you can't really work with us on racial issues or any kind, you know, LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. What is it about the Israel cause that just seems to strike a nerve? I, I mean, my honest answer, unfortunately, is anti-Semitism. Be- not because I, you know, I want to make the case that their anti-Semitism is so prevalent, but because there's simply no other explanation. You don't have any other community facing the same type of political litmus test that supporters of Israel face, especially considering that the vast majority of, you know, adamant supporters of Israel are Jews and are allies. So, you know, you would never see someone, and it would be horrifying if you did, but you would never see a leader in an LGBTQ community telling a Chinese person, you have to disavow the government of China and its occupation of Tibet if you want to march for LGBTQ rights, especially if you are a member of the community. Can you imagine trying to eject a Chinese lesbian from a march because she hasn't disavowed, you know, the Chinese one uh, one China policy? It would be totally racist. And so there's just simply no explanation for why the Jewish people are subjected to the same type, that type of political litmus test. Do you think a couple of additional factors are the fact that Israel has an image of being white, Western, very powerful, and we live at a time now where the people who are most aroused, the most sympathy, are seen as powerless and non-white. For example, the Palestinians have become a international cause célèbre for decades, and a big part of their success is this image of really being powerless, and Israel seems anything but powerless. If anything, the startup nation and the incredible military victories that you always hear about Israel reinforces the perception of a very, very strong country. And I wonder if, in addition to any potential anti-Semitism, Israel has gotten caught up in this modern-day aversion to, to power and that Western colonialist image. Well, first of all, I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly right. Um, But I have a few important responses, one of which is that Israel 
certainly has power compared to a lot of its neighbors in the region. Um, but but there's a reason that the IDF is called the Israel Defense Forces, that the Israeli military exists for defensive purposes only. You cannot point to an example where the IDF has offensively attacked uh you know, unless there was, except in 1967, you know, preemptively with full awareness that there was about to be a full-scale incursion. So, you know, the Israel Defense Forces exist to protect the Jewish people. It is the first time in history that we've had a Jewish army to protect ourselves and a state that we can call home. And, you know, the the idea, the suggestion that, that the Jewish people have now the state of Israel and are so disproportionately powerful is a real manipulation of history and facts and reality. And, you know, we are, the Jewish people are the most enduring persecuted community in history. We have survived exile and slavery and genocide. And we, we, we have an obligation, frankly, to seize on our history and apply what we've learned, the lessons that we've learned to fight for self-determination and civil rights and human dignity for our people, for other people as well. So the Jewish community has always been on the forefront of social justice activism, and we continue to be. But because of the intersectionality, because the Palestinians, as you said, have become a cause celeb, and frankly, because the narrative that's being perpetuated by the enemies of Israel is that if you see human dignity or even just humanity in the Palestinian people, that means that by definition, you must hate Israel and the Jews. And the dichotomy that's being created, you know, it's, 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 um, what's the word? Sorry. It's, uh, they, they make it out to be mutually exclusive, that you can't possibly see humanity in both Jews and Arabs, in Israelis and Palestinians. And that's not a recipe for peace or coexistence. And so that narrative is actually the most divisive, the most dangerous, not just for the Jewish people, but for the, Pal- the Palestinian people, too. You know, there's something about the conflict with the Palestinians that I don't know what the right metaphor is. It's like the albatross around Israel's neck. It's the elephant in the room. It's like no matter what statement one ever makes about Israel, for example, the fact that uh, in, in Israel, women have the most rights in the Middle East. In Israel, Arabs have the most rights in the Middle East. In Israel, it's a fully multicultural country that's anything but white, right? So. Anytime you make any kind of liberal pitch for Israel, that you have an Arab minister on the Supreme Court, that the person who graduated from top in her class at the Technion Med School was an Arab. And there are all kinds of examples that show this incredible liberal core at the, at the, in Israeli society. But anytime any of these points come up, it always comes back to the uh, Palestinian conflict that seems to obliterate right. any other narrative. Right. Any rational discussion of what Israel is, what Israel provides to the world, you know, what a vibrant and thriving democracy it, it is. Right. None of that really matters in the in the current narrative because of the Palestinian conflict. It's, uh, it's almost a type of checkmate where um, as long as the Palestinian conflict continues, there's nothing Israel can say to generate any kind of understanding, let alone sympathy. I think one of the best summaries I ever heard about the conflict was from Yossi Klein Alivi, who said, staying in the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel, and leaving the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel. And Israel is kind of stuck, Mm -hmm. whether the government is right-wing or left-wing, if the Palestinian side 
has decided that they're not ready to sign an agreement, then the checkmate will continue and the state of affairs will continue in terms of the Israeli narrative never really being able to push through. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad because it would be such a wonderful thing for everyone if the Palestinians would have accepted their own state in 1948 instead of going to war. And, you know, there were so many opportunities since then for a two-state solution and so many offers that were rejected and uh, so many violent responses to, you know, any prospective peace deal. And I, I wish both for my friends and family members in Israel and for the Palestinian people that their leaders would fight for them, would respect their human rights, would give them education instead of terror tunnels. And I want to fight for the Palestinian women. As a feminist here in America, I believe deeply in their human dignity, and I wish their governments would respect their human dignity the same way that I do. I have a crazy theory for why the conflict has been so impregnable. Um, that is that it's become a very lucrative enterprise Absolutely, you're right. for the Palestinians. As long as the occupation continues, they continue to collect billions from in international aid, mm -hmm. uh, and they continue to have the ammunition to malign Israel nonstop in the international criminal courts as well as the United Nations, and it feeds the BDS movement. But finally, the most surprising sort of theory that I've ever heard about this is that uh, the hatred of Israel and Zionism has been inculcated in Palestinian society for decades, yeah. correct? So if you assume that that's correct and that you have a, a leadership on the Palestinian side that has contempt for the whole Zionist project uh, with or without settlements, and we have been telling them for 20 years that the most important thing for the future of Zionism is the creation of the Palestinian state. Because if, if Israel has a Palestinian state next to it, then it will survive as a Jewish democracy. Without a Palestinian state, the future of Zionism is in severe doubt. So here's the great irony, is that Israel is asking the biggest haters of Zionism to save Zionism. Yep. Why should they say yes? Why should Mahmoud Abbas say yes to an agreement that will save Zionism? It's a, a valid question I don't have an answer to. And I, I think, you know, what how you started this, you know, this this part of the conversation about the the financial incentive to continue the conflict. Yasser Arafat was one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time of his death, and he knew exactly how to exploit the international community to continue the growth of the refugee population. As I'm sure you know, Palestinian refugees have quintupled since 1948, and they are the only refugee population in the world where the offspring of the original, you know, the original refugees are also also have refugee status. So it only provides incentive to continue the conflict, to continue to refuse a state, and to continue to bring billions of dollars from the international community, which are not being used to build Palestinian society, which are not being used for inf infrastructure or education or hospitals, you know, or, or roads. I mean, any of the things that really matter, they're used for warfare. All this money is being used for warfare and to line the pockets of the Hamas leaders who are living in Qatar, who are flying on private planes, who have these gigantic mega mansions on the Mediterranean. And the Palestinian people are suffering gravely every single day. And so if there is any 
humanity, frankly, in the leaders of the Palestinian people in the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, that is the answer. That is why they should help the Zionist project by by allowing the creation, accepting their own state. And we have to acknowledge that uh, Israel, the right-wing coalition, governing coalition in mm -hmm. Israel, has not helped by any means because if anything is has, it has sort of masked and covered up this uh, phenomenon of a Palestinian leadership that is incapable of signing any kind of deal no matter where the borders are drawn. Sometimes I fantasize about having a super far left government in Israel headed by J Street. Just to expose. <laughs> just And just go and, and yeah. then here. Just yes. make what, an see offer. See what happens. Yeah. Make an offer and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then the, we realize that, oh my God, we offer to dismantle um, you know, 200 settlements, evacuate 500,000 Jews, uh, give complete control of the Temple Mount, and on and on and on, accept 300,000 refugees from 48 and 67 back into Israel. We pretty much gave up everything. And then the Palestinian leadership was still incapable of signing on the dotted line that said this is the end of the conflict. And in, in a way, I have a fantasy that, uh, that this would happen, and this is the exact opposite kind of government. What you have in Israel now is a government that really does not look like it's ready to test the other side, call their bluff. And it just perpetrates this sort of false narrative. What do you think of that? I mean, I... I it's a very yeah. interesting dream that you've yeah. had, your fantasy. I, I think it would be really interesting to see. I worry about it as an experiment, um, in, you know, in terms of security issues. But I think, you know, first of all, we'll see what happens with the current governing coalition. Um, you know, we'll see if Netanyahu gets indicted. Who knows? You know, there's such interfighting in the Israeli political process anyway. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But... You know, I think that just collecting my thoughts, we should edit this. Well, while you collect your thoughts, I just cont continue a little bit because there's a hurricane of contempt for Israel mm -hmm. that sometimes is out of control. When you see what happens in the United Nations and you see that 80 percent of the condemnations are against one state and it's Israel, while 500,000 people are being murdered in this country yeah. and just horrible things are happening. And for some reason, they always focus on Israel. Um, and although it's sort of easy to rely on anti-Semitism, and even if that's sort of true or partly true, there's a part of me that would love to see what would happen yeah. if this issue of settlements and occupation was neutralized. Yeah. Yeah. I would be fascinated is, to see. I think— And even the BDS movement. Yeah. You know? The, all the oxygen for the contempt, for the condemnation of Israel comes from this one conflict, this inability to sign a, an agreement with the Palestinians. What would happen if, if a peace deal was concluded? Would it make a difference in the BDS movement? Would it make a difference in the United Nations? It's such a hypothetical. It's so hard to even imagine. You know, I don't know the answer. I guess my instinct is to say, no, I don't think it would make a difference, but I hope that it would. You know, I I hope that I could be 
an idealist just for a moment and hope that it's possible for us to see real peace and to see the international community say, okay, you know, the conflict has been solved. There are two states. We want to help both of them prosper. We want them to live side by side in peace and security. You know, they're, they're cousins. They, they could be brothers and sisters. They should see, you know, each other succeed and, and work together to advance both countries. I mean, in an ideal world, that would be incredible. Because my concern is that uh, so much of the animosity towards Israel has been, quote-unquote, really justified. Because, you know, when you have a, a world with a short attention span mm-hmm. and Israel is positioned as an oppressor of the Palestinians, that is an albatross around your neck that is hard to get rid of. So when you when we talk about the alienation of the new generation of American Jews vis-a-vis Israel, Unfortunately, in, in, in that world, it's really seen as justified. You know, you see these groups like If Not Now, and you see groups like, like J Street and, and so forth, and if they can make a strong case that Israel is an oppressor country that oppresses the Palestinians, I just don't see getting away from that. You know but what the I mean? Ca- that, the case There's no talking making... point that could sort of address that. Well, I... I... I disagree, I have to say. Okay. I think that the, the case they're making is not realistic, is not based on fact. Who's they? The, if not now, for example. I mean, I guess if not now and J Street don't necessarily have all of the same positions, but I think the suggestion that all of the blame for this con- uh, for this conflict can be put on Israel, that Israel is an oppressor and the Palestinians are the oppressed and it is a black and white, good and bad, you know, that is not how this works. And I think that you know, certainly the right-wing government in Israel, there, there are a lot of issues. It's, I'm not going to sit here and agree with every single Israeli policy, but Israel is a vibrant democracy, as we talked about earlier. The reason why there's a right-wing government in power is because the Israeli people voted for this government. And the reason why they voted for a right-wing government, even though I think the vast majority of Israelis actually believe strongly in a two-state solution, is because of the security threats that are presented by the refusal of the Palestinians to accept their own state. So this is interesting. So you have two narratives. One narrative is clear-cut. You have an oppressor and you have an oppressed. The other narrative is more complex. And should we be surprised that the first narrative has more traction? Absolutely not. Mm. And you are bringing it full circle here because Zioness is very simple. Zioness says we want to participate in domestic social justice activism. We are not going to play games in terms of having to pass political litmus tests in order to do that. If we want to fight for LGBT rights, LGBTQ rights, I should say, um, and we care about the advancement of those rights, anyone else who sincerely cares about the advancement of, the, of those rights should welcome us because we are a passionate community of activists. We have always been on the forefront of social justice activism, and we will continue to be. And anyone who really cares about the LGBTQ community wants more people fighting for those rights, not less. So the exclusionary tone of people saying, oh, you're a Zionist, you support the existence of the state of Israel, you support the safety and security of the only state in the world that protects the literally the lives of the Jewish people, the existence of the Jewish people, anyone who excludes us because we believe that we are entitled to the same self-determination that we fight for for other communities is not sincerely progressive and doesn't understand what it means to be progressive. How much of the Zionist movement involves promoting the cause of Israel? None. We're not... 
We're not a an organization committed to advancing Israel in the United States. We're not. It's not. It's not about Israel. It's just that we support Israel. And as people who support Israel, as Jews who care about our own civil rights, we want to fight for civil rights here. But we've been told that we're not allowed, that we're not invited. And so the only way to challenge the narrative that we're not welcome is to show up, to participate, to say, of course we should be here. We've always been here. The, the alliance between our progressive values and our Zionist identities is entirely intertwined and entirely natural and organic. It's fascinating because, you know, I have a branding background and you've picked a word that has been really polluted, which is, you know, the word Zionist. Um, and you've taken this sort of polluted word and are trying to redeem it mm -hmm. in a way. Um, so the implication is that you would want to promote the Zionist cause, but really the point you're making is that we're, we just happen to be Zionist. Mm -hmm. We're just Zionists who care about liberal issues. Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, for us, Zionism itself is a progressive value mm. because Zionism is the self-determination movement of the Jewish people. So it is entirely consistent as Zionists for us to fight for self-determination for other communities here in the United States. Right. But, uh, again, it doesn't mean you would not be part of a pro-Israel march, for example, right? It doesn't mean that we would not be. No, right. No, we—I right. mean, we haven't been, but it certainly doesn't mean yeah. that we wouldn't be. But, for example, people ask me all the time, you know, what is Zioness's position on settlement construction? And we don't have one. Why should we have, you know, it goes back to the example of the Chinese people, like, or, you know, the African-American community having to take positions on Nigerian policy before they fight for, you know, civil rights for the Hispanic community or the refugee community. No one else has to engage in these kinds of conversations. Now, independently, Zionists have tons of different positions on settlements and occupation and, you know, a two-state solution and disengagement and checkpoints. I mean, the hot button issues that relate to the the conflict go on and on. And they're, they, as I said earlier, they're incredibly nuanced and incredibly complex. And the intersectional narrative just completely disregards the complexity. But in as far as Zionism is defined as the right to sovereignty of the Jewish people, that there is consensus within all. Within Zionists. Within yes. Zionists. Yes. And, and Zionism, you know, you said it's a word that's been polluted. And I totally agree. And I think it's because we've allowed people who um, staunchly oppose the existence of the Jewish state and perhaps the continued, you know, existence of the Jewish people have overtaken the narrative. We've let them define what Zionism means and they've done it. They've perverted it. And, you know, Zionism does not have anything to do with Bibi Netanyahu. It has nothing to do with the conflict. It, Zionism existed as a dream of the Jewish people for thousands of years, long before there was a conflict, long before, you know, there was Islam as a religion. The Jewish people dreamed of, of having our home in our historic national homeland, you know, in the land of Israel, long before it was the state of Israel. So, you know, these are, again, very complicated issues that Zionist doesn't exist to address. But in the background, it's important for us to remember that we can have all of these different political positions about the modern day state of Israel, the policies of the right wing government in the modern day state of Israel. But our positions on those issues have nothing to do with our right to participate in, you know, liberal movements, progressive movements in the United States. What's the reaction been like in the Jewish community so far? Incredible. I, I mean, I'm overwhelmed with the enthusiasm for, for any what opposition. We've 
Um, sure. I mean, there's opposition from the people who are to the left of us, I guess, is is the word, even though I don't like to talk left right because, you know, we're talking about social justice. Um, there are groups that I guess on the continuum would consider themselves to be, quote unquote, left of us. And I think that we are frankly kind of a threat to them because they are telling people, they are telling especially young people, um, idealistic, smart, impressionable, and compassionate young Jews that in order to fight for, you know, progressive values in America, one has to denounce Zionism and has to divorce their Jewish and Zionist identity in order to participate. And I see it happening on college campuses. I see, you know, I've, I've gotten heartbreaking calls repeatedly from LGBT students who, you know, go to participate in the LGBT group on campus. I'm actually speaking at Berkeley on an issue like this where a Zionist member of the LGBT club reached out to the leadership of the club and said, I'm really upset to hear that you're hosting SJP in a pinkwashing event. It really breaks my heart as a Jew and as a Zionist that I feel like this group, the LGBTQ club on campus, is making me feel so alienated from something, you know, that represents my identity. You know, why do we have to have this really divisive conversation about pinkwashing that, you know, is is hurtful and bigoted and has no basis in reality. And so these kinds of things are happening all of the time. And students are being told that they have to make this false choice between being a Zionist and a progressive. Is this a uh, priority for you over the next uh, 12 months? Are you trying to make inroads on college campuses? Well, <laughs> to be totally honest, we launched six months ago. We just incorporated on Friday. We're filing for 501c3 status. Um, the last six months have been astonishing. The growth of the movement. We marched in 12 cities in the Women's March. Uh, we had the most incredible progressive icons leading our movement. We had Ann Lewis in Washington. She's Bill Clinton's White House communications director, sister of Barney Frank, uh, senior advisor to Hillary on both campaigns. I mean, she's incredible. We have a board with. She's now on your board, she, right? Ann is on our board. Um, we have a Persian Zionist on our board. We have Chloe Valdry, a black Zionist. We have a very diverse board um, of people, of, of true icons in the progressive movement and also in the Zionist movement. And we're just so excited to come together and think about our plans for the future. What were the marches like? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And none of us really knew what to expect. We didn't know whether we would be welcome, whether there would be, you know, any isolation, any negative commentary. And, you know, we, all the leaders in the different cities came together on a, on a phone call afterward, and we couldn't believe how positive the reception was. I mean, so you didn't get any friction this time out? There was like a little bit. In L.A., walk. there was a little bit because of the Scarlett Johansson incident. Mm. Did you hear about what happened? Tell us. So Scarlett Johansson was one of the speakers at the L.A. Women's March, and she there was some controversy because she was formerly uh, both an Oxfam representative and also a spokesperson for SodaStream. And so Oxfam dropped her as their ambassador, I guess she was, because she was involved in promoting SodaStream, which is an Israeli company that was operating in the territories. And it's such an unfortunate situation that happened because SodaStream ended up moving into Israel proper, into the Negev, and a thousand Palestinians lost their jobs. And this is what happens with BDS. The Palestinian people themselves are being harmed. This doesn't harm SodaStream. SodaStream still exists. It's still, you know, making their product. And Israelis are now working at the, at the factory. But the Palestinians lost their jobs. And Scarlett knew that. She knew what was going to happen if BDS succeeded with SodaStream. And she said, I, you know, I continue to support this company. So Oxfam dropped her. 
the BDSers, you know, the people who say they're pro-Palestinian but actually hurt the Palestinians are now targeting Scarlet, boycotting Scarlet. They refused to go to the march. They boycotted the march. There was screaming and shouting. They boycotted the march in L.A. Yeah, because Scarlet was speaking. I mean, it, it was a whole controversy. And then uh, how did you—what was the reaction on the ground in terms of all the Zionists that were marching mm-hmm. in L.A.? So, I mean, you know, we were there to march for women's rights and for, you know, all of the marginalized communities that are facing persecution under the Trump administration. We weren't there to get into a debate about where SodaStream should be located and, and you know, which location is going to be better for the Palestinian people. So, But did anyone show up to yeah, confront there was, you? There was, you know, a little bit of shouting, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian chants, which I, I think I, I was actually leading the New York group. I wasn't here. But from what I heard, you know, it lasted just for a few minutes. I think it was actually the Democratic Socialists of America who were leading the um, the opposition to Zionists in that moment. But, you know, that was a fleeting thing. And otherwise, we, as, as I said, I think we gave out 100 signs in Los Angeles. We had uh, people of all ages, of all colors, of all backgrounds, proudly carrying Zionist signs. We have, you know, unbelievable video. There was something that happened that was a really moving moment. A really sad moment, actually. A woman came up to the L.A. group and said that her daughter, who was with her, her 11-year-old daughter, was wearing an IDF sweatshirt um, and marching at the Women's March. And she was her 11-year-old daughter was harassed and told that the IDF, you know, is is oppressing and, and murdering Palestinians. And so this young girl took off her sweatshirt, turned it inside out and put her sweatshirt back on. So the mother came up to the Zionist contingent and said, I can't tell you how much it means to me that you're here. And, you know, this experience just happened with my daughter. And now, you know, we're going to raise her as a Zionist. We're going to tell her that she doesn't have to be ashamed of her Zionism or of the, the existence of the Jewish state. I mean, it's I got to show you, David, this video. It's I mean, we all cried watching this video. Sounds like an interesting story for the Jewish journal. It's would happy to put you would be happy to put you in touch if they're if they're comfortable with it. So, you know, these are the kinds of things we we had in um, Sacramento, California. I have a video of the Sacramento Zionesses. We had we had a bunch of different Zionist signs that people could choose which signs they wanted. And one of them said, Zionists stand with the women of Iran, because this was, you know, in, in the middle of the, you know, the protests in Iran, which were, frankly, led by women. And, and as a women's march in the U.S., we, we really wanted to stand in solidarity with them. And a Persian woman who was not Jewish came up. She has family in Iran, and she, I just said Iran to make it rhyme, but she has family in Iran. And she came up and she took the sign. She said, can I have, an, you know, one of these Iran signs? And the, the women who were leading the Zionist contingent in Sacramento said, of course, you know, we're so happy to meet you. And they took a video of her saying, you know, I can't tell you how much it meant to me to see the Zionists carrying the sign. You know, we were told that we're supposed to be enemies, but we're not enemies at all. We want to come together. We want to fight for women's empowerment all over the world. And it was, again, another moment of actual tears. And so on this catch-up call with all the leaders around the country, you know, we, we had all watched the videos. We had all looked at all the pictures from everyone's experiences of the march. And we said, never again is an 11-year-old girl going to be ashamed in the women's movement of her Zionism. Zionist is going to make sure that everyone feels welcome participating, standing up for women's rights, women's values, for healthcare, for, you know, equal pay, for access to education. And I mean, everything that women deserve in this country, we are going to make sure that we are there, we're fighting for it, and we're not going to check our Zionism at the door. I'm curious, uh, going forward, do you see what what will be the dominant sort of action of the movement? Will it be marches, whether it's on campuses or whether it's on the street? 
Will it be conferences? Uh, in which arena do you see operating the most? Obviously, campuses is always a super high-profile mm -hmm. arena in the Jewish community that's of high concern. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, I'm trying to visualize the future of your movement. Mm -hmm. And should we expect more marches that you might uh, start and initiate and lead? Should we expect like conferences where you have uh, a Zionist conference on women's rights in Iran or a Zionist conference on equal pay in America? Is that I'm just sort of free associating here? Yeah, I, I love the question. I think you can expect not in the immediate term, but in the long term, all of the above, except I don't know about conferences on women's rights in Iran. I personally would love to see some aspect of foreign policy. I was but just plugging my last editorial. <laughs> okay. Um, I would love to see some of that conversation, you know, entering our movement, but we're very focused right now on being a domestic movement that's advancing civil rights and social justice in the U.S. Um, but certainly we'll have a presence on campuses. I'm actually speaking at a bunch of different schools over the next couple of months. I'm doing a 10 college speaking tour in Boston. I'm going to Berkeley, as I said. Um, I forget where else, but it's been amazing the way that people are reaching out and saying, you know, we, we really want you to come. Students are really excited about Zion S. And as I was saying before, I think I don't think I finished the thought, but these other groups, if not now, J Street, et cetera, are all participating in this conversation where you know, progressive activists on campus have to make the false choice that I said. And Zionist is the first time that there's a movement, there's an opportunity where these people can hold both of their intrinsic identities at the same time and understand that there's absolutely no conflict. Well, I'll tell you, one thing we're going to keep an eye on is whether we will see hardcore liberals in the pro-Israel movement that uh, claim to be pro-Israel, mm -hmm. will they become part of the Zionist movement? And I'm thinking of, if not now, for mm -hmm. example, I'm thinking of J Street. Will they be part of the Zionist movement? Will J Street invite you to speak at their conference? Will they wear your T-shirts? Will, if not now, wear Zionist T-shirts? I don't know about J Street. Um, I would be, I guess, open to an invitation and, and you know, glad to see people proudly standing up as Zionists uh, in the progressive space, which, you know, of course, is what we exist to do. I think with If Not Now, I'm pretty confident that they will not, as Simone Zimmerman has publicly attacked me in the movement on Twitter. Explain so. that, please. She just, you know, after the Women's March, she said, there's nothing progressive about you. There's nothing sincere about you. You're not sincerely progressive. You don't care about anything except your own issue. You're, you know, right-wing Zionist, which is parroting the language of the divisive Women's March leaders, which is what you know, galvanize the Jewish community to join a movement like this in the first place. And now, so just to clarify, Simone Zimmerman is one of the founders of, of If, if not, not Now. now. Yes, right. yes. So listen, she's entitled to her position, but I, I think that a public attack is only clarifying the fact that she sees that her her language, her narrative is divisive and that we, Zionists, represent, at least in theory, around 74 percent of the American Jewish community who voted for Hillary and feel very strongly that their Zionist identity is part of their progressive identity. So, you know, these are frankly fringe groups and we have a lot of growth to accomplish. We have a lot of work to do to bring people into our movement. But I think that 
you know, our positions being, you know, staunchly liberal, caring about all of the issues that we care about and also being Zionist and, and being proud of our Jewish identity at the same time is really representative of the vast majority of the American Jewish community. And that, as I said, we, since we are the only group that exists where you can hold both identities at the same time and, and say and, and realize there's no conflict between the two of them, that presents a real challenge to these groups that are working so hard to divide those two parts of people's identities and, and make them choose their progressivism over their Zionism. Well, I'm looking forward to having you on the podcast in six months or 12 months and catching up on your progress. Thank you, David. Amanda Berman, thank you very much for joining us and enjoy L.A. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. <laughs>